This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The tour presses shoulder to shoulder in the narrow corridor, uttering sighs of relief as they make their way back up toward the light. Mangana stays behind. He wants to know what the room feels like once it's empty. He whistles to himself as he walks up the stone slab that dominates the chamber. Prison doctors conducted countless autopsies on this table. Mangana hoists himself onto it. He lies back, staring at the ceiling. The room is silent. Then he hears something from behind. It sounds like a knife sliding out of its sheath. He tilts his head up. In an alcove just behind him, a tall figure stares him down. It is pale, bald, and with a dark coat covering its body from neck to knees. In its hand is a thin, wickedly sharp blade. The figure's mouth twists and contorts as if to form words. But Mangana hears nothing. It takes a step toward the stone table, raising the knife. A low whispering fills the room. The sound of a dozen curious doctors who have just found a new subject. Mangana rolls off the table and lands painfully on the stone floor. He scrambles to his feet and turns around, fists raised defensively. The figure is nowhere to be seen. The dissection room in the Port Arthur Penitentiary is as empty as the tour had found it. The whispering, however, continues. It grows in the dusty air around him, pressing painfully against his ears. Among the racket, he hears a single word, payback. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Australia's Port Arthur, a high-security penal colony turned tourist trap, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. You can listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as podcasts, other shows, on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Tasmania is a large island state off the southern coast of Australia, 
When it was settled by the English in 1803, they dubbed it Van Diemen's Land and used it primarily as a penal colony, built to house the many undesirables transported from the British Isles for criminal behavior. One of the most infamous prisons on this island was Port Arthur. This facility was designed for the most hardened and difficult convicts, men which the other prisons in Van Diemen's Land had failed to rehabilitate. Settled on a peninsula, the prison at Port Arthur was claimed by many to be inescapable. In order to flee by foot, convicts would have to pass a heavily guarded and narrow isthmus called the Neck. This did not stop prisoners from trying to escape. In one instance, a man named Billy Hunt attempted to flee across the Neck dressed as a kangaroo. When hungry guards started to shoot at him, he realized his error and promptly surrendered. Most other escape attempts were less whimsical in nature. As they continually failed, prisoners began to realize that the only way to break free of this prison was to die. William Riley lay curled on the floor of his cell, trying not to cry. He had always thought of himself as a hard man. As a boy in England, he was tough. And as a man, he was even tougher. But now, he was lying on a cold stone floor, aching from head to toe. By William's count, it had to be early December. He was approaching his third year in this vile place. He considered raising himself onto his cot, but it hurt too much to move a muscle. The floor was not comfortable, but he'd rather lay there still than budge an inch. He could hear a whip crack from down the hall. Some other prisoner had broken the rules and was being struck with the cat of nine tails. Fifty lashes. He counted them, one by one. This made William feel better. He enjoyed listening to the pain of his fellow convicts. It distracted from his own misery to hear others suffering worse than he did. Night descended on the prison, reaching with its fingers and smothering the light in William Riley's cell. In the dark, it felt more like a tomb, one he would only leave for sparse meals and hard labor. When he closed his eyes, he could see her face, Mary. The reason he was in this suffocating hole, she had laughed at him, called him a little boy and a pathetic young flagellator. But that was before he took a knife to her face. Dawn came too quickly for William. His sleep was intermittent, and when he could doze off through the pain and rage, his dreams were filled with the harsh snapping of the cat of nine tails striking flesh. Whether he was asleep or awake, he could not escape torture. William was on his feet in a moment when he heard the guard approaching. When the guard arrived, William was standing at attention by his door. Only a slight twinge in his lip betrayed how much pain he was still carrying from the previous day's work. William fell in line with his fellow prisoners on the way to their work assignment. Familiar faces surrounded him. 
faces he hated. John Chitty, Joseph Sharp, George Mason, John Shuttleworth. Their eyes burned with contempt as they saw him join the line. They thought he was weak. If only they knew what he was capable of, then they would fear him. If only they knew what he did to Mary. Some men had a talent for making friends in captivity. William Riley was not such a man. Having spent his youth in and out of prison, he learned there was only one person he could rely on, himself. The prisoners were let out into the scorching summer sun and given their tools, rusty and dull shovels, spades and pickaxes, good enough to dig trenches, but not sharp enough to pose any threat to the guards. William's shoulders began aching the moment he started to dig. Within minutes, he was sweating heavily under the early summer sun. He wasn't being lashed or forced to walk the treadmill, but it was torture all the same. The others worked beside him. Chitty, Sharp, Mason, Shuttleworth. He would not forget their names. Even if he lived another 50 years in this hell, he would remember. He wished the guards were not watching so closely. He would love to see Mason face down in a ditch or Sharp thrown off one of the nearby cliffs. He wondered if any of them would even react to such humiliation. They were so broken, he doubted they would even raise a finger to stop him. Pathetic, chitty, sharp, Mason, Shuttleworth. That night, they shuffled back into the prison, a lifeless parade of hollow bodies. A shoulder pushed William, and he stumbled forward, almost losing his balance. He turned to see Shuttleworth, eyes cast downward onto the floor. Do they mean to mock me, William thought, furious bile rising in his throat. Chitty, sharp, Mason, Shuttleworth. They will pay. The days passed in a feverish summer haze. The prison pressed in around them. The sounds of torture filled his nights breaking into his dreams. But William did not care about those things anymore. His dull, torturous life at Port Arthur had a new purpose, an enemy to spend his energy on. The air stank of filth and sweat as William watched Shuttleworth go to work. William was on wheelbarrow duty. The four puppets cleared the trench, leaving piles of dirt for William to dispose of. As he rolled back and forth, shirt already sticking to his back with sweat. William surveyed the entire worksite. Trenches crossed the field in square patterns, the foundation for some future building. Around the miserable convicts, guards patrolled with mundane efficiency. If William could kill them all, he would. His eyes fell on a pile of spare tools sitting by the edge of the trench. At the top of the pile sat a jagged pickaxe. The blade glinted at him from between patches of rust. To William Riley, it looked almost heavenly. William approached the trench with his cart, making his way toward Shuttleworth. The man didn't even notice his approach. 
below, inside the trench itself, John Chitty sifted loose earth with a spade. Too far away to help. Shuttleworth is all alone. William drew the pick from the bottom of his wheelbarrow and swung it with all his might at the side of Shuttleworth's head. Shuttleworth let out a cry when the pick struck his temple, falling down onto his knees. He raised his hand to the side of his head, a gout of blood squirting between his fingers. The shovel clattered onto the ground beneath him. William struck Shuttleworth again in the same spot, knocking the man onto the ground. Shuttleworth writhed in the dirt, eyes wide with shock. A red haze filled William's mind as he brought the pickaxe up for a final... Euphoria washed over him. He had not felt such freedom since he had slashed that woman in Hobart so long ago. No one mocks William Riley, but he didn't strike again. John Chitty caught him around the shoulders, and the world came flooding back. Below, Shuttleworth twitched on the ground, blood running into the trench the prisoners had been digging. William let out a sigh of relief, dropping the pickaxe. He turned to Chitty and calmly said, I am satisfied. William Riley was a criminal from an early age. He was first transported to Australia in 1821 at 14 years old. In 1833, he was convicted of attempted murder and brought to Port Arthur Penitentiary. During his stay there, he was a model prisoner until December 16, 1835. That morning, four prisoners were digging trenches near the penitentiary, including John Chitty, Joseph Sharp, George Mason, and John Shuttleworth. At around 11 o'clock, William Riley ferociously struck John Shuttleworth in the head with a pickaxe. By the time Chitty got a hold of Riley, he had struck Shuttleworth three times in the head, fracturing his skull. Shuttleworth died hours later, and with the testimony of the other three convicts, William Riley was sentenced to death by hanging. Riley's motives remain a mystery. During his trial, he was silent, never once speaking up in his own defense. Had Shuttleworth offended him? Or had Riley killed Shuttleworth as a means of escaping the inescapable prison? The latter certainly seems possible. A number of desperate prisoners attempted this sort of crime over the years, as they believed going to hell for murder would be more tolerable than spending another day in Port Arthur Penitentiary. But even if this was a fatal escape attempt by William Riley, he has never really left. For a number of visitors to Port Arthur have seen the shadow of a man appear in a wall holding a pickaxe, ready to strike. This particular wall is part of the remains of the Port Arthur Church, the very building John Shuttleworth was digging the foundations for. When we return, we'll hear another story from Port Arthur's demonic history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. 
but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Punishment in Port Arthur was legendarily cruel to any inmates who stepped out of line. But in 1853, a new building was constructed for an entirely new form of inmate rehabilitation. It was called the separate prison, or the model prison, where men were deliberately isolated from human contact to ruminate on their sins. For 23 hours a day, prisoners were isolated in their cells and forbidden to make a sound. This silence system was seen as a humane treatment for prisoners. The belief was that a man who didn't interact with other men would be closer to God. In reality, this system had a far worse effect on prisoners than the most violent torture. Some were given special assignments to keep them from causing trouble. The nature of these assignments was often of a macabre nature. Big Mark Jeffrey had not forgotten the taste of freedom, but as he arrived at the Island of the Dead, it had never felt more distant. The guard checked to make sure his manacles were fastened tightly and promptly rode away, leaving Big Mark all alone. No, not quite alone. There were scores of men on the island with him, only they were all beneath the ground. This small island was in his care now. He was now the gravedigger, a punishment for fighting and attempting to kill the prison doctor. Due to an injured leg, the prison staff treated him like an invalid, but his temper made him too dangerous to keep in model prison. If he listened carefully, he could still hear the horrible screams from the lunatic asylum they built next to Model Prison. Model Prison, as always, was silent. And that somehow made it even more dreadful than the asylum. He would often reminisce about the exercise they received at Model Prison, walking up and down the narrow corridor, rows of men with sacks over their heads, forced into silence. During his time there, Big Mark felt like he was walking in some grim procession to hell. Or perhaps they had already arrived in hell and would be walking one hour a day for eternity. These thoughts rarely left his mind, even as he tended the gravesite. Every few days, new bodies were brought to his little island, sometimes guards or sailors, but most often, more nameless prisoners. They were all unfamiliar to him, corpses starved and wasted until they were barely distinguishable from skeletons. How many of them had he walked beside in that awful corridor? He tried not to think of this as he shoveled dirt over their withered faces. At night, he would sleep in a small shack on the island. Mark sank onto his cot to go to sleep. It was no feather bed, but compared to the hammock he slept in in model prison, it was heaven. 
His eyes shot open. It sounded like a person. Mark struck a match and lit a nearby lantern. The room was empty. He limped to the doorway and opened it, gazing out onto the featureless scenery around him. The Isle of the Dead was as empty as usual. He knew that voice. It sounded like his younger brother Luke, who he had not seen since they were in Millbank prison together. A dark figure passed in between the trees, just out of reach of the lantern. Its feet made no sound, but it was unmistakably a man. Mark attempted to call out to the shadow, but his voice, worn from disuse, caught in his throat with a dull croak. If he couldn't speak to the shadow, he had no intention of letting it speak to him. He slammed the door behind himself and propped his shovel underneath the handle. Unlike the doors of the prison, it had no lock. The island was his cell now. Though he had relative freedom on this island, time itself seemed to stand still. The mornings were exhausting and the nights were interminable. Everything had lost all meaning, including his own name. Perhaps he had died that night he attacked the doctor, and now he was in hell, only accompanied by shadows and spirits who left their graves at night. Mark Jeffrey shut the door behind him after a long day of burials. He would pass up his customary meal of stale bread and cheese. Sleep would be his sustenance tonight. Mark stopped when he heard the cackling. The shadow had come back. It had never been this close before. He took his shovel in both hands, ready for any kind of attack. His eyes fell on the doorknob. The shadow slithered from between the cracks in the wood and wrapped itself around the doorknob like a vine. The knob sharply twisted. Then the shadow recoiled into the wood as if it had never been there. The door inexorably swung open. Mark could not feel a breeze. A pair of blazing red eyes shone from the pitch darkness that now filled the doorway. Beneath it were rows of sharp, fang-like teeth. At the top of the shadow's head were two horns and a crown of dark flame. Perdition itself had joined him on the island of the dead. Big Mark fell to his knees in front of the beast, letting his shovel drop uselessly onto the floorboards. He asked what it wanted with him. It turned and went out the door. As if dragged by a chain, Mark found himself following. The journey was not long. The island of the dead was so small, one could cross it in under an hour. The shadow ahead of him never looked back, but Mark could still feel its eyes burning into him. Finally, they arrived at the shore. The shadow stopped and directed its gaze downwards. Mark followed its evil stare to the earth. At the devil's feet was a grave, freshly dug and perfectly maintained. Five foot, 11 inches long, 
the perfect height for Mark Jeffrey. Mark fell to his knees and pleaded, tears streaming from his eyes. He begged him to let him go, saying he would do anything it asked of him. The only response he received was laughter. And then the demon vanished, leaving only silence behind. Kneeling by his own grave, Mark felt that silence pressing on him. He was alone, unloved, and cursed. His life would be spent burying the dead in isolation, with no hope of salvation, or even the comfort of a real human voice. When he could take the silence no longer, he threw back his head and screamed, until there was no air left in his lungs. He prayed for salvation. He prayed that someone in Port Arthur would hear him. Port Arthur was an active prison for 44 years, and the Isle of the Dead served as its graveyard for all of that time. Around 1,000 people are buried there, including prisoners, guards, lunatics from the asylum, and boys from the nearby Point Poor Institution for Criminal Youths. The majority of these graves are unmarked, as it was forbidden to mark the graves of convicts. Big Mark Jeffrey was one of the last gravediggers to work on the Isle of the Dead. While reports vary, it is believed he was sent there for being too much of a handful for the prison staff. He pleaded with the prison guards to be let off the island after an instance in the late 1870s where he claimed to have encountered the devil. During this time, he also dug his own grave, which he maintained fastidiously. When Port Arthur Penitentiary was closed, Big Mark was transferred to Hobart Penitentiary and spent the rest of his days in the invalid wing. He found religion and never caused trouble again for the rest of his life. He died in 1903 at 78 years of age. The silent system remained in effect from 1853 until the prison shut its doors in 1877. Sightings of hooded men prowling up and down the corridors of model prison are common among visitors, and some have reported sudden feelings of depression and despair when visiting this infamous wing. The Isle of the Dead, however, remains silent. When we return, we'll explore how the dark history of Port Arthur affects it to this very day. Now, back to the story. Even though it has been abandoned for 132 years, Port Arthur Penitentiary still holds a host of inhabitants, many of whom stick to their own particular places. Cell 14 belonged to William Carter, a man who suffered from severe depression and dissociation common to convicts under the silence system. Rather than go to the asylum, he hanged himself in his cell, where his powerful emotions are still felt, reducing some visitors to tears or paralysis when they pass its door. But convicts are not the only ghosts seen walking the prison grounds. 
On more than one occasion, guests have encountered a soldier standing stock still among the ruins, asking them what they're doing with a confused look on his face. This unnamed guard may be the only spirit in the entire town of Port Arthur who can see you as clearly as you can see him. But the most haunted building on the grounds is called the Parsonage, the home provided for Port Arthur's resident clergymen. Over the prison's active years, the Parsonage housed priests, accountants, and even the families of those innocents who worked in the prison. February 1996. Port Arthur had never been busier, Lacey observed. Many people came to this landmark at the very tail end of summer, while the help desk woman had assured Lacey that the site was this busy all year. Lacey suspected that this was the busiest day Port Arthur would experience in quite some time. It was far from ideal. Lacey Cross was a self-styled historical photographer. His bread and butter was taking photographs of historic landmarks. He had been to Port Arthur as a child, but this was his first time revisiting it as an adult with a purpose. The sun was dipping low on the horizon, perfect for scenic photography, but he had maybe an hour before his shots would be unusable. Lacey made his way toward the nearest building, a modest orange house across the road from the church, the parsonage. He had no tour guide. He didn't need one. Lacey passed a small group of bright-faced teens on their way out of the parsonage, following a tour guide. He briefly met the tour guide's eyes and thought he saw something in them. Was it concern? Alarm? He could not tell. Lacey walked through the house, taking pictures as he went. It was not a terribly remarkable building, he thought, but the orange light from the sunset gave it a nice quality. He photographed the main entrance hallway and the staircase leading up to the second floor. Then, the door behind Lacey slammed shut. Lacey jumped at the sudden noise. He was not an easily startled man, but the rapidly dwindling light was leaving him on edge. He shook himself and went back to his original objective. He moved through the house efficiently taking pictures as he went. In a few moments, he had completely covered the inside of the house. He looked out a window at the surrounding historical site, wondering if there was another iconic building he could reach before dark. To his surprise, the field outside, which had been bustling with tourists a moment ago, was empty. He couldn't even see a seagull. Someone else was in the room with Lacey, approaching from behind. The footsteps were not heavy. They sounded light, like a child's or a young woman. He turned to face an empty room. The sun passed its lowest point on the horizon, bathing the house in a pale blue gloom. Trying to keep his hands from shaking, Lacey checked his camera's light meter. As he suspected, it was now too dark to take any photographs. Then he heard another sound. There it was, clear as day, the sound of a woman weeping from another room in the house. 
A chill crept up his spine, and he gripped his camera tightly. Lacey crept his way along the wall, back to the main entrance. He reached the door quickly at the foot of the stairs. He checked one last time over his shoulder to make sure he was not followed. He caught a glimpse of something at the top of the stairs, a flutter of a gray dress passing between rooms on the second floor, like a wisp of a cloud. The weeping continued from the second floor. As he watched, the gray dress reappeared at the top of the stairs. Its head was in shadow, and the dress curved outward, shaping a pregnant belly. It took a step down the stairs, then another, and another. It descended toward him with strange, bow-legged steps, still weeping. As it drew closer, Lacey saw a dark stain on the gray cloth between the creature's legs. It looked like blood. Its hands clutched the bottom of its pregnant belly, shaking with some powerful emotion. Lacey turned and tried the handle, attempting to put the horrible weeping out of his mind. He had to get out now, get away from this horrible woman, or whatever it was. Suddenly, the room was quiet again. The weeping stopped as if on a switch. Lacey stared at the doorknob in front of him, not daring to even take a breath. He looked over his shoulder. The ghostly woman's face was inches away from his own. Up close, he could see every horrific detail. Its skin was a pale blue. Tears streaked down its face in black rivers. Its eyes were milky white, and its mouth was open in a silent wail. Lacey screamed and threw his whole weight into the door. The door wouldn't budge. A pair of fingers, slimy and smelling of blood, ran up Lacey's exposed forearms. They gripped onto him with horrible strength, crushing him beneath their unearthly power. The door burst inward, knocking Lacey onto his back. He scrambled out the door on hands and knees, not bothering to look dignified as he tumbled out of the dark house into the meager light of dusk. As he steadied his breathing, he turned back to the parsonage, a far less intimidating building now that he was outside of it. He aimed his lens at the building and zoomed in, turning the focus ring as he did so. When he returned from Port Arthur to his apartment in Hobart, he set about developing the film he took there. Most of the photographs were merely decent pictures of the Port Arthur buildings, with the exception of his final photograph from the parsonage. It was blurry and poorly framed, but he could just make out a shape in the doorway of the building. It looked like a woman in a white dress, smiling happily, hands protectively holding her pregnant belly. The parsonage is home to a number of spirits, many of whom appear fairly benign. But one recurring phantasm, spotted most frequently by children and spirit photographers, 
is called the Lady Blue. Believed to be the wife of an accountant who lived in the parsonage, the Lady Blue weeps for her children. She died in childbirth, and her baby could not follow her to the afterlife. Some say she seeks to comfort children, or maybe find a replacement child for herself. Though the ghosts of Port Arthur are from its time as a prison, that does not mean its dark past ended in 1877. On the 28th of April, 1996, a disturbed 29-year-old man drove to the small town of Port Arthur with a duffel bag full of firearms. When he arrived, he opened fire on every person he encountered, starting with a bed and breakfast near the historical site. His rampage continued throughout the town of Port Arthur until police captured him on the morning of April 29th. During this incident, 35 people were killed and 23 were injured. The man was sentenced to 35 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He has never revealed the motivation for this horrific act of violence. And while none of his victims have been spotted among the ghosts of Port Arthur, it was another horrific and horrid contribution to the evil history of Port Arthur. Port Arthur, a town of less than 300 living people, but countless ghosts. While it was only an active prison for 44 years, the cruelty inflicted within its walls left a scar on Tasmania that may never heal. From the inhumane torture of the 1800s to the horrific murder spree of 1996, Port Arthur will always be a place of death. So if you ever find yourself in the southern end of Tasmania, visit Port Arthur. Walk through the halls of the church, the foundation of which William Riley baptized in blood. Visit the cell where William Carter ended his life, or visit the parsonage where the Lady Blue cries for the children she'll never see. No matter what spirits you see, you will no doubt find it a captivating experience. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy this show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Robert Teamstra. I'm Greg Polson. Mm-hmm.